Today we're going to continue this series called Transformed, and we are walking through the book of Acts. We made it all the way to Acts chapter 9, and this is one of, I know you guys hear this all the time, this is actually one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. And even back when I was a youth pastor, back when I was telling God what I would and would not do with my life, you guys ever been there? Right? Like, God, I will never be a lead pastor, I will never pastor a church. When I was in that phase, I, thought, I even had this thought that if I ever did, that this scripture would definitely be foundational for it because it kind of has all of it. And it's Acts chapter 9, verse 31, and it says this. And, and I've, I've memorized it in the New King James, and so... Uh, We'll see if I can do it. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. There's so much in this verse. It's talking about the church growing out and expanding. It's talking about uh, that there was peace, right? It talks about, how many guys know when there's unity in a group of people, God can do a whole lot of stuff, can't he? And so if a church has unity and peace, man, there's, there's no telling what can happen. It says they were being built up or being edified. That means growing in the things of God, growing, walking in the fear of the Lord, realizing that there's a holy reverence for a holy God, that it's not my way or the highway, that it's God's way or no way, right? That it, it, it talks about being in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. How many of you guys know the Holy Spirit is our comforter, our guide? And I'm so thankful, as we've been talking about this year, about the power of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the spoken, God, the God still speaks today. When God is still speaking in a church, then the church can be multiplied. Can somebody say amen to that, right? So this scripture is one of my favorite verses because I would just think about it all the time. I'd think about all those elements and all those ingredients But the question I have for us today is, when it says the church is multiplied, the question is, how is the church multiplied? Or maybe a a different question would be, how should the church be multiplied? Because there's a lot of different, you know, we have the church growth, you know, movement that happened in the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s where it's like, hey, let's just, you know, do a bunch of stuff. The attractional church movement, which was basically, if you didn't realize it was going on, it was basically like, let's attract you to church with everything but church and then hope you stick around when you find out it's a church, basically, right? It still goes on today, but it's the attractional model of trying to get people in the doors to try to multiply the church. And some people push back on that, and so they'll say, well, okay, well, we need to go missional, which is more like house church or more grassroots type church, and let's get back, or, you know, the early church type model. And so there's all these different ways that we can try to multiply the church. The question is, how should the church be multiplied? I saw an article a couple weeks ago by Tom Rayner, who's a, uh, he's a leader in the church and does, you know, they did a research project and statistics, and they said this, now listen to this, they said that for every hundred people in church attendance, every year, just to stay even, you have to replace or add 32 people for every 100 people just to stay even. And here's why. Because statistically, nationwide statistics, is that for every 100 people in your church, one person out of 100 is going to die. <laughs> so that takes out one person, right? So you got to replace that person. Sounds so crude, right, when I'm saying it. But, but these are, and, and so another reason why, I mean, again, just to stay even. So think about Journey Church on a weekend. We have three services. If we just want to stay even in attendance uh, from, from 20, you know, 23 to 2024, we have to, supposedly according to this, 
add 32%. So one person dies, so you replace them. Nine people out of those 100 people statistically will move to another area. And so if you just want to stay even, you got to replace the nine. Seven people will transfer to another church. So if you want to stay even, you got to replace the seven. 15, per, 15 of those 100 people, the reason why you would have to add 15 more people is due to declining church frequency, attendance frequency. Because if you have 100 people attending every weekend 100% of the time, and now all of a sudden that 100 people are attending, or you, know, you have 15 of those that are attending half of the time, or maybe once a month, then just to stay even as far as attendance, you have to add 15 people. So is everybody tracking with me? So out of every 100, so for Journey Church, let's just conservatively say that between all three services, there's 600 people. That means if we just wanna stay even this time next year, we would have to add 192 people just to stay even. That, that, is, that was great timing, Brian. I appreciate that. We were talking about that before service. Um, you just never know what's going through my mind when I'm preaching, right? But just to stay even. Now here's the question though. Is church attendance really multiplication? Because that's how we think about it a lot of times. Is church attendance really multiplication? Because I believe when the Bible talks about, in Acts 9.31 it says, and the church multiplied, I don't think it was mainly talking about church attendance. So what does it look like for the church to multiply? And I believe the answer to church multiplication is found in a word that appears in chapter nine. I believe it's about eight times, depending on your translation. It's a word that appears there eight times. So let's dig into the story of Acts chapter nine. Remember, we, we led off and left off in Acts chapter seven with Stephen getting martyred. And who was standing over Stephen as he was being martyred? The, it was Saul, right? Well, here we pick up with the story with Saul. It says in verse one, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found anyone belonging to the way, that's those people who are followers of Jesus. That's what they called them, the, the way. Because I mean, you guys know Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. If any of them is belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly there was a light from heaven this shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So here God is prophesying to Paul. He's saying, here's what you need to do next. This is one of the most dramatic conversion stories in all of history, in all of the Bible for sure. And he says the, men who are it says, the men who are traveling with him stood speechless. They heard a voice, but they didn't see anyone. And so Saul rose from the ground. And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Dramatic conversion. Why does the church multiply? Some of us might look at this story and say, ah, there it is. It's a dramatic conversion that causes the church to multiply. And I would say this. Certainly dramatic conversions like Saul are certainly a spark, but we haven't got to the word in chapter nine yet that is one of our eight words that, that I believe actually is what causes a church to multiply. And it's found in the very next verse. Acts chapter nine, verse 10, it says, now there was a disciple. Can everybody say disciple? 
I'm going to need you to help me preach today, okay? So you got to, if you hear something good, I want, I want to hear that you heard something good, okay? So it says, a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Which is, by the way, that, that's the right response. So I believe that the church, when it talks about church multiplication, the church multiplies not just because of dramatic conversions, although we're thankful for them, but the church multiplies because of radical disciples. Because of people who have been not just, so I would just say it this way. Every single one of you, please hear me because this is so, so critical. This is so critical that you are not just called to be a convert. You're called to be a disciple. See, so many times we just think it's about, you know, getting people to say yes to Jesus and to, to start, you know, to, to say a, a prayer for Jesus. And listen, we have all the, so many times we measure church multiplication by raised hands. And, and we start counting how many hands are raised at an altar. And listen, I'm, I'm thankful for all of that. But Billy Graham, you guys know Billy Graham, he was one of the, he's probably preached to more people live than anybody else on the planet in all of history. And all these altars were flooded and stadiums filled year after year after year, 50 plus years of ministry filling stadiums all over the world. You know what they said that, you know, all those people who came down for the altar, they, they did some studies on that and they said that it was only about 2% that they figured out 2% actually stuck with it. Now, thank God for the 2%, because if you add up all those numbers, that's still a lot of people, right? Like 2% out of all of that is great, but still 2%. And I think it's because we think that just raising a hand or having an emotional decision in a moment and then now calling ourselves saved is, is what it takes, and nothing else changes about our life. But it's not just about being a convert. It's not just about, about praying a prayer. It's not just about getting in the door. So the question then is, if we are called to be disciples, then what does it mean to actually be a disciple? And some people will say, well, like, I, I just want you to take a moment for right now and just think about, what is my definition of a disciple? Like, when I think about being a disciple of Jesus, what does that mean? Because a lot of us might come up with an answer like, well, I guess it means probably living a fuller Christian life or a deeper Christian life. Like, you know, we wouldn't want to say being a better Christian because, you know, we know it's not about works and all that type of stuff, but we might come up with an answer like that. Like, what does it mean to actually be a disciple? And so I don't normally do this. I mean, I, I normally do video stuff, so we're getting ready to see a video, so that's what I normally do. But what I don't normally do is go to the whiteboard. And so just for fun, we're going to have a couple whiteboard sessions, so let's check it out. All right, what is a disciple? I'm not talking about just the Christian life. We're not talking about just what it means to be a Christian, but we're talking about what does it mean to be an actual disciple? And so to look at this, I'll just give you an illustration. I found this somewhere in the church. I don't even think it's a real whiteboard, but it'll work. So uh, let me just draw a circle, and it's not a perfect circle, but it'll work as well. And let's just pretend that everything about who Jesus is is in here. And I know we can't contain all that he is, but... You know, the, the way of, of Jesus is in this. You know, it's represented in who he is. The, the will of God, the, the, the love of Jesus, the, the kindness of God. My handwriting is 
horrible. I hope you can read that. But the the emotions of Jesus are here. And so what discipleship is, it's like before we're saved, we're just out here doing our own thing. But when you get saved, you you come into Christ, you know, and your old life is just gone. And now the new life, the Bible says we are now hidden in Christ. And so we are now transferred into the love of God, into the way of God, the will of God. But we have to grow into those things. And so discipleship is simply becoming more Christ-like. It's becoming a follower of Jesus so that as we grow, we start to grow more into the patience of Jesus. We grow more into the will of God, to the love of God, that as we, we grow, we grow more and more of us begins to look like the kindness of God as we're a disciple and we become a lifelong follower of Jesus. I love the way Dallas Willard put it. He said, Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would become if he were you. Let me say it again. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. We all have our different gifts, talents, building abilities, but who would, what would it look like for Jesus if Jesus were you? What would that look like? That's the process of discipleship. But you can't do this on your own. I mean, even the Apostle Paul, when he came to Christ, he had the qualifications. I mean, he knew the Bible inside and out. He, he, had, he knew it all. But even he, when he came into Christ, he was just a baby in Christ. And so Jesus says, because you can't, I'll send you someone who can. And what did that look like for Paul? It was the Holy Spirit and other disciples, a guy named Ananias. Because you can't, I'll send you someone who can. Because he couldn't even, even the Apostle Paul couldn't grow in discipleship on his own. And so we're the same. We need the Holy Spirit and we need other believers if we're going to not just become a convert, but if we're going to become a disciple, we need the Holy Spirit and other believers. And you never outgrow this process. So if you think you've got to a point where it's like, oh, I don't need this anymore. I don't need anybody to teach me. I don't need, I don't need to be a part of it. I, I can do it on my own. No, this is the way discipleship works because there's always new things, new levels, new things that we can grow in God. Sometimes those people are in our life for a season. Sometimes they're in our life for a long, for the long haul. But this is the process of discipleship. And so we're not called just to be in Christ just to get in the door. We're not called just to be a convert. We're called to be an ongoing disciple of Jesus, a follower of the way of Jesus Christ. All right, so because of that, we're not just called just to be a convert. We're called to be a disciple. As we look at this story of Ananias, it even goes further than that. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 10, it says, now there was a disciple. So he's, he's not a convert. He's now a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to a street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, you will see a, a man or look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And for behold, he is praying. Now, I want you to understand, God is in real time giving Ananias information he couldn't have otherwise. What, was, what is that? That's a spiritual gift. We've learned about those, right? He's giving him information. He's giving him details about what's happening. And so he says, there's a guy. Here's his name. 
Here's where he's at. I want you to go there for behold, he's praying and here's what he's doing. And he has seen, and it goes even further. He says, he's seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many, uh, you know, from many people about this guy. You got to understand, all that people knew about Saul at this point was that he was out to kill people like Ananias. Like we have to take a step back and put ourselves in the moment of the story. And the only resume Saul had right now was Christian killer. That was it. That was his whole resume. And so sometimes it's easy to say, oh, well, look, that was cool. Ananias went over and he prayed for Paul. And the, wouldn't it be cool to meet the apostle Paul? No, it wouldn't have been in that moment. So all he's got in this moment is a resume of a guy who kills people like him. When God says, I want you to go and to, to pray for him, he says, Lord, I've heard of how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And now he's got the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. He's doing one of these. He's like, is this you, Lord? Have you ever had one of those moments like God asked you to do something hard? You're like, this can't be God, right? This can't be God. This has got to be pizza from last night or something. You know, I just got too excited at the worship service and I thought I heard from God. This is what, I mean, think about Ananias. He's got to be thinking, yeah, I don't know if that's God. Like that's just something, you know. But no, God speaks to him. The Lord said to him, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, this would all be very, I, want you, I just want to get this down for us. This would all be very hard for Ananias to believe. A chosen instrument of God? This guy is everything that is against God. He represents everything that's against the, the God that Ananias was serving. And so, so what happens? It says, so Ananias departed into the house. Now, all we know is the next thing that happened. We don't know the struggle that was happening between Ananias in that moment even further. But it says, no, Ananias went, and he, he, he went into the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Do you know how much faith it would take for Ananias to call him brother? He was acting on the word of the Lord. He was prophetically seeing Saul, not as he knew in the natural, but he was prophetically seeing him and speaking to him and calling out things in him that were not in the natural, but were in the spiritual. And so he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off from his eyes and he regained his sight and then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And so we have this dramatic story, not only of, of Saul's conversion, but we have this dramatic story of Ananias. The question is like there's a hinge point in there. Will Ananias obey? Now let's personalize it. I want you to think about something hard that God is asking you to do right now that you probably have a hard time believing that it's God. You probably have a hard time seeing an outcome that will be good. You probably have a hard time, you know, following through with it. Now let's ask ourselves the question, will I obey? And I think the, the challenge to that, and, and the reason why I think a lot of us dismiss some of these harder things, is because we obey God a lot. I mean, many of you in this room, you obey God all the time. You're like, okay, God says to, you know, to gather together as believers. You're here today. You're like, okay, I'll obey God. God, you know, many of you guys are serving. Many of you guys give. Many of you guys are doing several things. We obey God a lot. 
And the problem is, we tend to measure our obedience in quantity, not difficulty. And because we measure our obedience in quantity, we think we obey God all the time. And certainly, many of us obey God frequently. But the question isn't, do we obey God frequently? The question is, do we obey God? Because a disciple is what? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. When you signed up to be a follower of Jesus, not a convert, not just to get in, but when you signed up to be a follower of Jesus, what does that mean? That means that God has my yes from now until eternity. That there's no moment that God comes to me where I get to tell him no or maybe. That I have been bought with a price. I am his. It is no longer I that lives, but I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. There was an exchange that happened. And so from now until eternity, God has my yes. And God certainly had Ananias' yes. But this was a fork in the road for Ananias. Because one of the, this was part of the reason Ananias was actually put on the planet to be a part of Paul's conversion story and healing and getting him filled with the Holy Spirit. But here's what I want you to catch. Let the weight of this hit you today. It was totally optional. God wouldn't make him do it even though he told him to do it. The same is for us right now. There are things in our life that even though God is telling us to do or asking us to do, it's totally optional. God will not make us do it. See, so many times we live by this pattern of fatalism of, well, if it happens, it's God's will. If this thing happens or that thing happens, it must be God's will. No, no, no. There's just like that word that Chris shared today. There are some things that we've got to step into that God lays before us. And so... I, here, here's what I want you to, to get. Not only are you not just supposed to be a, a convert, you're actually supposed to be a disciple. Let's take this a little bit further and see what Ananias is doing because you're not just supposed to be a disciple. You're actually supposed to be one that makes disciples. Every single person here, when you said yes to following Jesus, when you said yes to becoming a disciple, a follower of Jesus, you also, whether you realize it or not, you said yes to making disciples. Not just Pastor Sean make disciples. Not just missionaries make disciples. Not just evangelists. Every single person who is a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't care how long you've been following Jesus or, or not been, you know, maybe a very short amount of time, you signed up to be a disciple, which means a lifelong follower, that God has my yes, but as a part of the yes, you also said yes to making other disciples. Every single one of us. So you're not called just to become a disciple, you're called to become disciple maker. And when the church makes disciples, it multiplies. Not just when the church gathers as many people as possible in one room, because how many of you guys know, it doesn't take, you can gather a crowd about anything. Sometimes we're measuring church growth by crowd size. That's, that's not, I mean, Jesus measured church growth, I think, sometimes by shrinking the crowd. Because <laughs> he said some things that were very difficult, but the church grew. And, and so you're not just called to become a disciple, you're called to make disciples. And it doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter if you're in ministry or not ministry as a vocation. 
Every single person here. I could go through, I wish I could go through and say every one of your names. And I would just tell you, and I would just kind of knight you for a second and say, you realize you are a disciple maker. That calling on your life, which is the calling on every single person's life here that, that said yes to Jesus, that calling on your life is permanent. But the fulfillment is optional. That calling is, per, is permanent, but that fulfillment is optional. And I want you to think, this is the reason why I can't go by, can't go by Acts chapter 9 without talking about this. Because this, this, this just stood out to me years ago, and I just can't get over it. And th- think about Ananias' story here. Think about how much God risked on Ananias. And the way that I think about this, when I, when I finally saw this, think about the timeline of what happens in this story. So God comes to Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to think about the timeline. Ananias, I want you to go talk to this guy named Saul. By the way, I've already told him that a guy with your name is coming. I already showed him in a vision that a guy with Ananias. So sometimes we think it goes like this, like, like God kind of gives us an opportunity and then like, okay, if I say yes, then God will go tell him that I'm coming. No, 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 no. That's not what happened. God told Saul before he told Ananias. He said, hey, Saul, there's a guy named Ananias coming. And he goes over to Ananias. Hey, Ananias, I need you to go talk to Saul because I've already told him that a guy with your name is coming. Think about how much God risked by telling, by telling Saul first. Because how many of you guys know that one way or the other, God is not a liar. A man with the name Ananias was going to come because God said it was going to happen, right? And I've always wondered, I wonder how many Ananiases God had to go through before somebody said yes. Because God's not a liar. Somebody, some dude by the name of Ananias is coming to Saul. How much has God risked on Ananias to tell him, tell Saul in advance before Ananias because somebody had to say yes. Some guy named Ananias. And I wonder, what has God set up in front of you? See, God may be asking you to do something right now and you just think, well, it's optional. We'll see what happens. What if, I'm just saying, it's in the Bible. Like, what if God has set something up like with the apostle Paul, who Saul at the time, And what if God has already set stuff in motion that he's waiting for your yes? Very specific things. Now, God's not a liar. He will get it done. The question is, who will he get it done through? I want to be an Ananias. I want to be, you know, we say it all the time right here. There are people on the other side of your obedience. I want you to think about if Ananias hadn't followed through, or followed through, if some guy named Ananias hadn't followed through, think about, we wouldn't be reading much in the New Testament after this because Paul wrote most of the rest of it, right? Think about all that happened because of one guy's obedience. One guy's obedience. All right, so we're called not just to be a convert, we're called to be a disciple, but we're not just called to be a disciple. We're also called, every single one of us, to be a disciple maker. So what does it look like to make disciples? All right, back to the whiteboard. Let's find out. Let's do it. All right, so what does it look like for us to make disciples? 
it looks very similar to the process that happens in us as we are becoming disciples. What happens is, now that we've grown in the love of God and the emotions of God, the will of God, all of these things, maybe our circle has grown quite a bit that we start to look a lot like Jesus. And then we see on the outside, we see these all these other people who maybe their circles haven't grown as much. And they're out there and there's a tendency in us, if pride enters our heart, just to think, well, tough luck or get with the program or, you know, why aren't you following God like I'm following God? And that's not what we're called to do. What we're called to do is just like Jesus brought us into his world, we're called to bring people into our world. And to say, basically what discipleship is, is it's saying, I am what you're not until you can be. So if you're not good at reading the Bible, let me help you be that until you can be. And as I walk with you in Jesus, I will, you will begin to grow. You're not good at prayer. I am what you're not until you can be. Let, let me help you grow in these things. And we're drawing these things out through the cooperation of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the gifts of the Spirit. We're calling things out in people. That's the process of making disciples. I am what you're not until you can be. If you're not good at spiritual gifts, let me help walk with you and draw that out of you until you can be. Now, a lot of people will look at that and say, well, I, I don't know if I can do that because that comes at a cost. And a lot of times the cost is our time, it's our energy, it's our resources. And a lot of us, here's the truth, so many of us are not willing to do the very thing that Jesus asked us to do to make disciples. We're so busy in all these other things that we cannot seem to get the heart of what he actually wanted us to do, to not just be a follower of Jesus ourselves, but to actually make other disciples. Why is that? I think it's because we're in love with the wrong things. And some of us might have an idea of what that is. Maybe it's not what you think it is, though. But I do believe we're in love with some of the wrong things when it comes to fulfilling the Great Commission. All right, so certainly, what are some of those things that we might be in love with the wrong thing? Of course, we all have idols in our life. We, you know, we could say, oh, I'll get rid of idols, or we have wrong. Have you guys ever had a wrong priority? My hand's up first, okay? Yeah, we've had wrong priorities, distractions. Can, can become, we can become in love with the distractions in our life. Um, lots of different things. But I believe actually one of the things that's the most powerful thing that actually keeps us from making disciples that we become in love with that is actually a good thing. I, I, I'll, I'll reveal what it is here in a second, but to, to set it up, I have to say it this way. My, my wife, Becca, and I, we love to, we just discovered that we love to go around on these trips, and I've got a truck with a tent that, like, mounts to the back of the bed of it. It's kind of confusing. I should have put a picture up, but it, it, it gets you up off the ground. It's not ground camping. It's, it's like you're, you're at some, I, here's how I describe it. It's somewhere between the poor man's RV and the rich man's tent, okay? It's somewhere in there. And so when we first started off a couple years ago, 
we didn't know anything about it. We didn't know what we liked or not. We didn't know what to get. And so we just started getting some things and trying some things out. And we're like, well, that didn't work and that didn't work. And so let's upgrade this. Let's refine that. And so I, I, we started over time slowly, just meticulously upgrading our systems and upgrading all of these things. And what does it look like to have a, a shower system and all these types of things so that we can just go remote off grid somewhere and go on some adventure. How many of you guys are like, we would just, just nicely call it, just, you are just obsessed with researching things. Any, do we have any of those people? Yes, just go ahead and admit it. I know you're processing, should I make this decision right now or should I not? I get that. But I found that as I have been doing this over and over and over again, that even this year, this, the last couple months, I've been like on Facebook Marketplace, like researching stuff, buying stuff, and I'm so proud of myself when I buy stuff at an extreme discount. How many of you guys are like that? Okay, let me just talk to those of you guys who have the spiritual gift of shopping for just a second, right? All right, so I'm like obsessively, and, I, and here's what I do. I tell everybody about like, man, I got this. It was listed this. It was new in the box, and I got it for this price. And so I have been just obsessively researching stuff, you know, accumulating things, and just, I mean, it's probably a real problem, guys. It probably is. My wife thinks it is, but I still, and, and I just do this. And, and I found out, this, this was like two weeks ago. I was like in my process, like I'm checking stuff every five seconds, it seems like. I'm just, is there a new thing out there? Is this, what's the price on that? And I'm checking it like obsessively and I realize I'm having a lot of fun with this. Like I actually like doing this. And then I had this thought, I think over the last two months, I've been more in love with this than the actual trip. Like I don't even know where we're going. Like, I am actually more in love with the preparation than actually taking the trip. And I wonder if that happens to us. Is it possible that we can be so in love with preparing books, podcasts, services, worship times, coffee dates with people, Whatever it is. The preparation process is necessary and you should love it. But I wonder if so many of us are so in love with the preparation of being a disciple that we forgot that there's a trip to take. And we become so in love with preparing that we never take the trip that we never actually go and do what we were called to go and do because we're so in love with the preparation. We're so in love with the research. We're so in love with the study. We're so in love with the activities that happen that get us ready for something that many of us are never going to do. Is it possible that we're so in love with preparation for the Great Commission than actually fulfilling the Great Commission. This is a sobering thought. I've been having it for the last several, several months. I've been having these discussions with our leadership team the last several, several months. Because as a leadership team, we've been talking about this, that we have to go from finding disciples to making disciples. 
Because what tends to happen when we talk about, let, let me just, just let you in on a little church insider stuff, a lot of people, a lot of churches end up trying to just, like when they try to grow a church, they'll just find disciples, like ready-made already disciples. Like let's find a bunch of disciples and we're waiting for found disciples to come and show up so we can plug them into different places. And I've been telling our leadership team, listen, that's great, I'm so glad that, that disciples are showing up and want to plug in, but we have to go from finding disciples to making disciples. Because, because we can't just depend and wait for like a bunch of people. Because what happens is we end up saying, oh, there's no, there's no disciples that are ready. And so then we don't end up doing anything. Or we don't, but that's not even the point. The point is that every single one of us, whether we're a ministry leader or not, is to make disciples. But what if we're so in love with the preparation that we never take the trip? Not only does God risk on us, what is he risking ahead of you? But God wants us, what I'm saying is God wants us to risk on other people. God wants us to bring other people into our world. Not just once in our life. Not just when we first got saved. Not, like, this is, this is it. This is, like, for the rest of your life, you signed up to bring people into your world. That's it. For the rest of your life. There's no retirement in the kingdom, by the way. That we just, we bring people into our life. And so, as we... Continue with the story, Acts chapter 9, verse 26. Not only does Ananias get in on it, but watch what happens. It says, when he had come to Jerusalem, that's, that's Saul, now Paul, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, which we would be too, because he only had a resume of evil, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But as I was meditating on the scriptures this week, this phrase just stood out, but Barnabas. I thought, oh man, here's another, another pivotal moment, but Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and he brought him to the, to the apostles and he declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. But Barnabas, you know, as I was meditating on this this week, I thought I want a lot of people when I look back at my life to say, but Sean. I was discouraged, but Sean. I, I didn't know what to do, but Sean. I didn't fit in, but Sean, like you ought to have, you ought to want that too. Barnabas, it, it, his name means son of encouragement. He, he was, that word encouragement literally means to put courage in. Barnabas was putting courage in Saul. He was putting courage in Paul. But Barnabas, and, and so many of us are so in love with the preparation, we're never taking the trip. We're so busy that, you know, an outside watching world doesn't even know what we're doing at times. I love Tertullian, who was a, a pastor in the third century uh, of the North African city of Carthage. Kind of give you a little history, not that you guys are going to go home and look that up. But he said this, he said, non-Christians are saying about the Christians in his day, they're saying this, they're, they're saying, look how they love one another and they're ready to die for one another. And he said this, he goes on, and he says, it was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders, it was Christians themselves who attracted them. And when we talk about how is the church multiplied, I think we're overly dependent upon church worship to attract. Now, we, you know, we hear all this stuff about Asbury and stuff. Many of you guys have followed that. And it's great. It's wonderful. I love it. We should, be, we should want more of it. I want more of it here. I want, I want more of it here. But what I'm saying is that even beyond that, if that is the only way, if we're not actually going out and making disciples, then 
then we maybe we're preparing for a trip we're never going to take. What, what I'm trying to tell you is that you have something that someone else needs. Every single one of you. God designed you so that when you started to follow him and became a disciple, that you would have a deposit on the inside of you that would also be a seed of a disciple maker that somebody else needs. That in some ways you're incomplete without doing that. I, I love Rob, Rob and Cherie Treese were here last night. They're members of our church. And I was with them earlier this week, spending some time with them. And you got to understand, like I heard Rob's story of salvation. And it was, I mean, it was, it was a dramatic conversion story. If you've ever heard his story, it's a dramatic conversion story. Someday I'm going to have, have him tell it. But it was just a dramatic conversion story. And God really saved him. But you know, he only came to Christ like two years ago. And the reason I was with him this week is because he asked me to be on the board of a ministry that he's starting called Journey to Christ Ministry where he's going to go around, to, he's going to have a campground with ministers to other people and Bible studies and all this kind of stuff. He understands he's not supposed to just be a convert. He's not even just supposed to be a disciple. He's supposed to be a disciple maker. So two years from the time that he said yes to following Jesus, he's turned around and he started a ministry to start discipling other people. Can I just tell you something? That is what normal looks like. And I don't mean to hold them up, hold them up on a pedestal because it's not meant to be held up on a pedestal. That's normal. But how many of us, and I don't mean to jump on a soapbox, I don't mean to bring condemnation, I'm just asking us to deal with our hearts for a second. How many of us, we, we can't look back two years, and I mean, think about where you were in 2021. What were you, you doing in 2021? Does your life look any different? I can tell you Rob and Cherie's life looks 180 different. And now, they're in, now they, they've, they've said yes to Jesus, and now they're just going for it. That's normal. Some of us can look back a decade and our life, our spiritual growth doesn't look any different. Our ministry doesn't look any different. Our discipleship efforts don't look any different. Some of us, two decades, three decades, four decades, and we don't have anybody in our circle that we're, we're drawing those things out of. But you have something that someone else needs. And so the Apostle Paul, who had an Ananias, he had a Barnabas, he eventually writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about the body of Christ, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. What I want you to catch is that your part is indispensable. Every single one of us. Every single one of you have the capacity and the anointing and the calling of God on you to multiply disciples. Every single one of us. And so I heard this statement a long time ago. Maybe you've heard this before, but here's the question. If all of your prayers that you have right now, if all of your prayers were instantaneously answered right now, how many of you guys would like that, right? <laughs> if all of your prayers were instantaneously answered, Would the world change or just your life?
Now let's, let's take it a little bit more specific to this message. Because I know there are a lot of people here that just want, you have a hunger. We talk about hunger. You have a hunger to grow in the Lord. You have a hunger to go deeper in God. You have a hunger to go more about, to know more about your calling, to know more about, uh, you know, the, the, the depths of who God is and to grow closer to God. Let me just make it more specific. If all of your spiritual growth prayers were answered instantaneously, would others change or would it be just your life change? Because every one of us as disciples, if we're truly not just converts, not just disciples, but we're actually disciple makers, if all of our prayers were instantaneously answered in the area of our spiritual growth, it wouldn't just be us growing dramatically. There should be a list of other people who would also automatically just be blessed. And so, worship team, if you would come back up, just leave you with this question, what risks do we need to take, not only so that there are more people in the kingdom, but so that there are more people flourishing in the kingdom? What do we need to do to not just prepare and fall so in love with the preparation, but that we actually get on the trip and start the adventure with God? See, some of us are bored right now in our Christian life. Some of us are offended in our Christian life. Some of us are upset in our Christian life. Some of us are stuck in our Christian life. Could I suggest that maybe it is because we have fallen just in love with the preparation and we're not actually taking the trip right now? Because I just I have a guess that if we started to step out and we started to get on the trip that I'm talking about, we started to make disciples, I'm telling you some of that stuff would just fall off. Because how many of you guys have ever been in a situation where you felt fully alive? Like I remember I was in Honduras in, it was like 2002, I think it was. I was on a missions trip and for whatever reason, I've told this story before, but I'm not gonna take the time right now, but if we found ourselves under this 200 foot waterfall at this little tourist spot that we stopped and I'm swimming underneath a waterfall going to a cave behind the waterfall and I remember having this thought. I was like, this is about as alive as I'm ever gonna feel, Right? How many of you guys can think of a moment like that? Maybe you're out in nature or maybe you're just experiencing elements of something and you just felt fully alive. What I want to suggest is that some of us don't feel full. Some of us feel dead on the inside. It's because we are sitting on the tour bus and we're not under the waterfall. We're sitting on the tour bus. We're not under the waterfall. We're not stepping out into the deep waters. We're not experiencing all that God has because all of the life that we've been living is about us. Even the things we're doing for other people is about us. What, I, what I'm trying to create is a shift in us because some of us are making decisions to follow after God, to serve God, to minister to other people. But even in those things, we've made it about us and not about them. Like we, you know, you can find yourself serving God in incredible ways and it all be about you. And all of your decisions to serve God can be about you. All of your decisions to serve other people can just be about you. And my prayer today is that something in us opens up that has the heart of Ananias. Something in us opens up that has a heart of Barnabas. It says, you know what Barnabas did? He risked his time and his reputation to put his arm around Saul and says, I don't care at the end of this whether I look good, 
but I sure want God to look good at the end. But Barnabas, put your name in there for just a second. Just in your mind, just, just put your name in there. And can we stand up and respond in worship? Because I think when we get the heart of this, we will see Acts 9.31 that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, I believe there's going to be peace. People are going to be built up. People are going to be walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it's going to multiply. But this doesn't happen just because we replace 32% of people every year or 33 to try to grow. <laughs> this happens when we become disciple makers. What, what if we had 600 disciple makers? You don't think things would change with that? Oh, I think things would change. So let's just make that our heart. Let's give God the invitation. Holy Spirit, would you come and open up our heart? You are our guide. You are our comforter. Would you lead us and guide us right now? Well, we can only wonder right now what risks you've already set into motion on us. But I can say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord and we're going to be yes people. When you, come to, when you come to me, God, I will say yes. Whatever it is. felt a moment of just like the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Conviction is, is a good thing. We ought to welcome conviction. Lord, guide our steps. Guide our steps. Jesus, we say, have your way in us today. Have your way.